Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we pull all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Tonight, we are talking to Mike Sullenberger about the history of DMVPN, which was, which was SD-WAN before SD-WAN was cool. So grab a pile of cookies, sit back, and listen in as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good evening, Mike. Glad you could join us to talk about SD-WAN, or about See, I just did it again about DMVPN. <laughs> That's terrible. So how's it going? And just, I guess, start with where it all started. Tell us a little bit about yourself first, I guess, and, and where you came from and how you got involved in this mess. Okay, well, yeah, thank you very much, Russ, for inviting me to <clears throat> talk about DMVPN. Um, so I guess I started my networking journey back at Slack, Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, uh, back in like, oh, 85, 86. So Mike didn't tell us he was a nuclear scientist. That's what he did. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I helped program the uh, accelerators, but. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, it was was a fun job. But, um, yeah, we first started out with a worldwide DECnet network. Oh, my people may remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, but That's I was, I, I helped them bring uh, TCP IP in, into the network. And that's, um, so that was pretty cool trying to, trying to bring in brand new, brand new architecture into an existing network, running TCP IP and DECnet side by side. Um, so, so were you running ISO iGRIP? Were you running BGP iGRIP? What were you running to do that? I'm just curious. Um, or BGP ISO, or do you remember? ISIS, probably. It was DECnet's version of ISIS. Okay. So DECnet Phase 5, which was DECnet, Yeah, so we, we were Phase 4, and then we were trying to go to Phase 5, and Phase 5 never really took off before DEC sort of imploded. Right. And stuff. So, but it was, yeah, it was DECnet's version of ISIS. Okay, cool. On that. And then um, TCP IP was mostly, I did mostly local stuff, just on the local network. It wasn't, um, we were starting to build it, you know, nationwide, across the nationwide network, but a lot of it was local area. From there, I went over to uh, TGV, small uh, startup company that was writing TCP IP stacks for Backs VMS computers. Okay. Um, and that's where I really learned TCP IP, at least layers four and up, because um, I was part of uh, the uh, technical assistance. So they brought us, me and uh, Dan Wing, to do their technical assistance um, <laughs> and let their, en- let their engineers actually go back to programming. <laughs> Dan Wing. Wow. Dan Wing. Yep. <laughs> and stuff. Uh, so that was fun. And then, of course, as you know, a couple of years later, Cisco bought TGV, uh, kept a dozen or so people, maybe two dozen people, and sold everything else off. Okay. So that's uh, how you ended up at Cisco. So um, Cisco. So you were in engineering, or were you in? I thought you were in. As in TAC. In TAC, that's what I thought, yeah. 
Yeah, so I came That's in through That's where tech. all the trouble starts is in tech. That's Did I rest? Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I started. <laughs> Clever. Yeah, I mean, that, that's where I took, um, I was able to use that to gain knowledge in layers, you know, two and three, you know, and add that to my layer four, though. A lot of the engineers there while I was taking cases were, it would just sort of roll their eyes when I would ask for a sniffer trace <laughs> or a TCP dump or, you know, because <laughs> I was used to working layer four through layer seven and I needed to look at what packets were doing. Yeah. Sure. So I, I've always, I've always wanted to know what's the packet doing on the wire. And then I can tell you what, what effect that has. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, fundamental, I you know, fundamental network troubleshooting, right? Yeah. yeah. You got to exactly. see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So from there, let's see, I think you went to global escalation, right? And then from there you went into engineering or something like that. Is that. Uh, no, actually I was, well, yeah, I went into the escalation team and then, um, so I was in there and then went distinguished engineer and then I didn't go into engineering except for the last three years as an engineering. But I mean, from 2000 on, I worked fairly closely with engineering. I sort of, you know, sort of straddled that fence, but on the tax side. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, in those days in Cisco, I mean, that's about when I actually moved over to engineering was it was this whole thing of we had these, the escalation team could code, you know, and do things. And it was right. very close relationship with, um, with, with the, with the coders of a particular area, whatever our specialty was. Yeah, I was, um, I was, I never really coded that much. I mean, my coding experience is Fortran 4. Oh, Wow. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and DCL, that control language. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't see. translate. I mean, the yeah. ideas were there, but I didn't have all the, you know, any of the details. Yeah. I right. really didn't code much, but um, I worked on more as a network design, protocol design, stuff like that. Okay. Um, I used to, Back in 1999 and 2000, I would go and find out about engineering meetings and go be the TAC mole <laughs> in the meeting. <laughs> that way I could figure out what, what, what was going on, what was happening. Uh, wow, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, so so, so no. how did this idea for DMVPN emerge? Where did, where did that come from? So that's actually fairly interesting. Um, I attribute it back to I had, 1999 sometime I had this case customer brought to me um, and he had set up this NHRP network next hop resolution protocol network I'd never heard of this thing so this usual shuffle trying to keep him busy while I try to look up and to see what it is <laughs> This is an old tack trick, by the way. Yeah. And escalation. Keep the customer busy while you read the documentation and go find the code and figure out what this actually does. That's right. <laughs> and so he was using it with GRE tunnels. And that was also an interesting story behind it because when I look back later, Tony Lee, when they wrote NHRP, which was originally designed for ATM networks and uh, frame relay networks, he actually added all the code to let it apply to GRE tunnels. 
So it was actually interesting that that piece was mostly there, was already there just because he decided, well, that would be cool. Let me just do it. Mostly being the operative word. (laughs) Yeah. We decided to use that more directly and more fully. Yes, we had to go fix some stuff. (laughs) I'll I'll tell Tony you said that the next time I see him. (laughs) Yeah. That would be amusing. But anyway, so he was using NHRP and GRE tunnels to hide his central network from these edges. So all of the edges would connect to the edge and then GRE tunnel across. And then so the structure of his central network just disappeared. So it really was this operator who decided to build an overlay with GRE and NHRP. Yep. Exactly. And it was over plain IP, so it was over the plain internet at that time, right? Which was really unusual, was it? Or was it over frame? Um, it was pretty unusual. Yeah. I'd never really seen it. We hadn't seen many people layering in that way. Yeah. Like going on top of Yeah. But um, so, you know, that sort of stuck in my mind later. And when, so then I moved over to, so all that time I was in the uh, writing protocols team. And so then I moved over to security. And the difference was, is that I came from security from a routing standpoint, not security from security standpoint. Crazy talk. Crazy talk. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I always thought thought about, I want to build the network and then add security on top of it. So, but anyway, to continue with the story, um, we were starting to bring in IPsec. So prior to that, we had the Cisco encryption technology, CET, which was an <laughs> early form of tunnel VPN. Yes, I remember this, unfortunately. Yeah. This and the land extender. Yeah. The beautiful products. <laughs> <sighs> but anyway, so IPsec was coming out. And we started, you know, building all the pieces of IPsec. And I was watching customers try to build a VPN with IPsec tunnels. And what I was seeing was a disjointed network in that, yes, I could put an IPsec tunnel here. I could put an IPsec tunnel there. I could put an IPsec tunnel here. And I had a network at the home position or central site. And I had a network at the remote site. But because I put IPsec tunnel between them, yeah, I had a connection between them, but they were two disjoint networks. I wasn't building everything together. Nothing was coming together. So I started thinking about that and I'm going, well, what we can do is we can build a GRE tunnel between the two and IPsec encrypt the GRE tunnel and then put whatever we want through the tunnel. So everything goes through the tunnel because the tunnel itself is encrypted, everything inside it's encrypted. And so that works great. So we started building those networks out. So we started you know, telling customers about this and building the network out that way. And then I was starting to look at as customers were going from you know, 10, 20, 30 nodes to 100, 200, 300, 400 nodes. We started looking at, well, what does this mean on, because usually it was a hub and spoke network which is IPsec type encrypted networks do tend to come back to hub and spoke networks 
because it's really a collection of point-to-point tunnels, really. Right. And the difficulty in key exchange would make it almost impossible to do a full mesh, that type of thing. And then just the configuration is very, right. very difficult. Right. Exactly. So I started looking at what it was going to cause for configuration and load on the central node. And I did one, one calculation, 300 remote nodes was going to cost me about 6,000 lines of config on the central <laughs> node. And sort I of think got I've seen that router. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. I say, I've seen that access list. 10,000 yeah. lines. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was like 300 tunnel endpoints, oh, just, you know, and so we know this wasn't going to scale. So that's when I remembered, oh, wait a minute, GRE tunnels can do this NHRP thing. So that instead of having 300 tunnel endpoints at the central node, I can collapse that down to one tunnel endpoint, which took out about 60 or 70% of the config lines. Sure. In one shot. Um, the other thing, oh, one thing I didn't mention was on IPsec, because IPsec couldn't glue networks together because you couldn't run multicast over an IPsec tunnel. It just wasn't defined. So, but when we brought in GRE, I could run G- multicast over GRE tunnel. It's just a point to point. It, you know, it doesn't care. It's just a multicast packet. Who cares? Right. Um, so that was what allowed us to run the routing protocol over the GRE tunnel that's encrypted by IPsec. And so now we had we were gluing the network into one network piece. And this will come come to play a little bit later. So we were doing that. So we had this. We thought of DMVPN. I mean, that's where the, the starting of DMVPN came out. In fact, probably somewhere I've got laying around an email I sent to engineering with the original idea. Um, it was taking NHRP, it was taking GRE tunnels, it was taking IPsec and a few ideas of how to sort of minimally glue them together to make the three products work together. Really wasn't DMVPN, but it was just that minimal type idea of gluing the pieces together. Um, So we started looking at that and I got, so through that email, I got some responses and I got Jan, Jan Vilhuber. Yeah. Interested in it from engineering side. So he was more of a senior level engineer and had some free time or could take some free time. And so we played with it. fixed Tony's code. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was pretty, pretty I'm trying to think. Oh, um, I think there was a piece of code in there that allowed the spokes to register to do the initial registration. But there was no code for the hub to send back a registration reply. So the spokes knew the register worked. (laughs) This is not a good thing. (laughs) So we actually had... we actually wrote that code, but then we had a problem that we had some deployments that didn't know how to reply and some deployments that knew how to reply. So we had to put in a flag 
to say whether you were, you know, reply capable or not. Because <laughs> we added code to the spoke so that it wouldn't bring up the tunnel until it knew it got a reply from the hub, knowing that it was up online. Okay. But if the, if, the, if the hub couldn't reply, it never came up. Right. Right. And stuff. So those that couldn't understand a reply just assumed it was up <laughs> with that flag. <laughs> like we only needed that flag for a short time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. No, go ahead, Russ. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, when, when TAC tells you you need to upgrade to the latest code version, there, there are reasons for that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they may not want to tell you all the gory details, but, but they're there. <laughs> they're there, yes. Um, we don't want to say how many workarounds we have in place to get around uh, code incompatibility. <laughs> yeah. So, so how many, so how many spokes are you handling at this point with DMVPN or with GRE IPsec over, I mean, just out of curiosity, what's the scale like? So at this point we were building, so we run it on 7,200s where our workhorse hub routers. Cause it's a smoking fast box. It was a, it was a nice box. It was a nice box. (laughs) Very nice box. Much better than those honking 7500s. I know. 7500 had no processor in it compared to the 72. <laughs> it's really funny. People always thought the 75 because it was so big. Yeah. Must be a really fast box. Not really. The 72 was the smoker. <laughs> um, we could get 500 to 1,000 nodes okay. out of a 7200. Now, one of the nice things when we did the design for DMVPN was I made sure that it was scalable and flexible and it was independent so that if I needed more hub power, I could just throw in more 7200s. Okay. In parallel. And it wouldn't, the the whole network would still work together, but I could, you know, run, run things in parallel. Okay. A lot of that is because, you know, NHRP, the way it's designed. Right. And stuff. So, so you started out with this email, which wasn't really DMVPN. It was just like this basic idea of running GRE IP right. and some routing protocol on top of the GRE tunnel, correct? I mean, that was kind of a part right. of the picture. Mm-hmm. We didn't, uh, my whole idea there was to try to keep each layer independent so that we could run IPsec for encryption, but if something else came along for encryption, we could, you know, replace it. Jerry Tunnels. Oh, why would we ever do that? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow. Jerry Tunnels, um, et cetera. You know, each layer and the routing protocol I left open, you know, as long as it'll run over IP and do, basically as long as it'll run over IP, you can run it. Um, so you I just cut out your favorite routing protocol, you know. IS to IS. IS. Well, actually... <laughs> I was very fond of EIGRP. <laughs> well, I know. I know. We all were. We still are. I still yeah. love EIGRP. It's a great protocol. People can fuss at it, but it's a really great protocol. And stuff. Yeah, ISIS was cut out. That is true. It's the only one we couldn't run. <laughs> because not that GRE and HRP couldn't, well, not that GRE couldn't do it, 
NHR, we'd have to go back and teach NHRP about ISO addressing. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So explain a little bit about NHRP, maybe. That might be helpful. There are people oh. probably sitting out there going, what, what is, is this? Yeah, what is this? Yeah. That's, so NHRP, I call it a fancy ARP protocol. <laughs> fancy address resolution protocol. That's really what it is. Remote, remote ARP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, you know, in standard ARP on an Ethernet, if I'm a node, I have an IP address, I need to know your MAC address, I just broadcast out saying, here's an IP address, who has it, tell me your MAC address. So it's more of a question answer. Um, NHRP flips it the other way around, and then it's more of a broadcast, and then everybody stores the information. So when the spoke comes online, he broadcasts, here is my IP address, here is my DMVPN tunnel IP address in our case. But it, it actually, NHRP works on Ethernet too. He could actually advertise his MAC address. So when he comes up online, he advertises his address mapping, and then everybody just stores it. It's ARP Jeopardy. You can yeah. state the answer, and then somebody else asks the question. Right. right. Or Sorry. you state the answer. They don't even actually have to ask anymore. <laughs> right. <they> right. <laughs> and it actually comes back from Frame Relay. If you think how when Frame Relay comes online, a Frame Relay node comes online, he basically sends his IP address, sends an ARP. What is that? A reverse ARP, I think it yep, is. It's a ARP. That's correct. Or an inverse ARP. Sends a reverse ARP to tell the other end, oh, by the way, you know, over this Frame Relay channel, this is my IP address. Right. Because Frame Relay is multiplexed and you actually have DELCs and you can have a different IP address or a different subnet on each DELCY. So right. at the other end, you've got to be able to associate that DELCY with an IP address. So you have to do this RARP thing where you're actually sending out saying it's like a gratuitous ARP, but almost it's, it's not really you're just replying. Right. Yeah, no, so exactly. So, I mean, that's what, and so NHRP just took those ideas and added some more protocol to it. So you have a, you have a number of different mechanisms. Uh, so the, the main mechanism is a registration. So, so when we configure a spoke, we pre-configure the hub's mapping. So he knows how to get to the hub. As soon as he comes online, then he sends an NHRP registration to the hub. Hub sends back a reply saying, I got it. And then the spoke knows to go ahead and bring that tunnel online. But the hub then builds out the database. Now, the, that was only piece of it. That, that builds me a nice hub and spoke network, but it doesn't give me the cross nodes, right. cross connections. <laughs> and that was the big thing for DMVPN was to dynamically build cross connections on the fly without, you know, having to run traffic through the hub. So I can, so instead of, if a hub has maybe a uh, hundred meg or 200 meg worth of bandwidth in a pure hub and spoke network, that limits my bandwidth across my whole network. Right. But if I can go cross connects, then if aggregate wise, if I add up all the, you know, the, the 200 meg at the hub and maybe each spoke has 
10 meg and I've 10 got a hundred of them, is right. there's a gig. I can still fully use that theoretically fully use that gig. Cause I've got, I'm doing direct cross cross connects tunnels right. or cross connect tunnels. But the thing is, is that, you know, before NHRP, I'd have to program the address mappings on every node. Right. To be able to do the cross connect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the configuration complexity of that at a hundred nodes is wholly unmanageable. Like you just can't do it. Right. And right. And here we're building (laughs) up to a thousand nodes or more. Right. And stuff. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And so even having the case where the spoke registers with the hub and the hub turns around. Now, what we also didn't want is the hub then to turn around and dump his whole mapping database out to every spoke. Because that just adds extra load. And likely, a spoke may use maybe 2 or 3% yeah. of that database yeah. at any time. And those are 2,500s or even 1,000s in some cases? Uh, they were mostly 2,500s at the yeah. time. Yeah. So not yeah. very big processors, not a lot of memory what two gig four gig of memory and some not even some cases oh not even that i don't think i think we're in the hundred megs yeah hundreds of megs yeah a couple hundred megs yeah and stuff and so i mean you really couldn't afford that so so we had the registration process so the hub being a bigger box he could store all this he built out the full database um though if you had multiple hubs each hub only had to know the database for his set of spokes right um, and then there was a mechanism that we interconnected the hubs via NHRP GRE tunnels. There was a second mechanism in NHRP where I could send out a query. Okay. And so the difference here is that I, I want to query. So I'm basically, again, I'm asking, I have this destination IP address or subnet or whatever I need to get to. You know, what's the tunnel IP address I need to use to build my tunnel to? The difference here is that I couldn't broadcast it. I can only send the request via the channels I already have open. Right. So it would go from a next, what we call a next hop client, that would be a spoke, to a next hop server, which would be a hub. The hub would check his database. If he has that entry, he could actually answer immediately. Um, We actually decided not to go with that method we actually decided it was better to have him forward the request onto the remote spoke. Okay, so why is that? Why was that done that way? So the trick there was that by doing that, then the remote spoke actually picked up the source mapping for the spoke that's trying to find him. Ah, okay. So this is like bridge learning, essentially. You're learning off the source. Right. Right. So we're picking up the source. And the interesting thing is, is that the now he would then, of course, answer and the packet, the NHRP resolution reply packet would have to go back through the same path, back through the hub to get there. Um, and that would happen. But the interesting thing is that the destination spoke actually had all the information he needed to start initiating tunnel back to the initiating spoke. So the tunnels were actually built backwards. Oh, interesting. 
So the initiator said, I want to get to you. The destination says, oh, I know who the initiator is now. I can build, I can initiate the tunnel going back. To the originating host, the originator of the query. Originator of the query. Right. But because the originator doesn't know where to send it. Right. right? He's right. not going to know until he has a tunnel. Right. So he has to send out the request and then the, the recipient is like, oh, you want to talk to me? I'm going to pick up the handset and answer your call. And now we can talk. Right. Right. That, that's exactly it. And what we ended up doing was we actually, instead of sending the reply back via the hub, we actually set it up so that the destination spoke, hung on to the reply, waited for the tunnel to come up and then forwarded the reply back over the tunnel. Because okay. the source spoke could receive packets. He just couldn't send packets back until they got the reply. But then once he gets the reply, he knows we're all good, and he's just going to start communicating across that tunnel because he's got all the information he needs now. Exactly. Gotcha. And the reason I did that was that I was using the NHRP resolution reply going over the tunnel I just built to confirm that the tunnel I just built works. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's a liveness, an immediate liveness. Right. That's really cool. So now the other, no, go ahead. Actually, one, what, there's one more piece to that. The other interesting thing is, is that most of the time what would happen now, now remember that data traffic was flying between these two nodes via the hub while this is occurring. Cause until we build the spoke to spoke tunnel, we don't, switch over and use it, we'll use the spoke hub spoke path. So what often happened, even if like I pinged from the initiator spoke to the destination spoke, the reply ping went back the other way and triggered NHRP in the opposite direction. So often it was almost simultaneously that both sides sent an NHRP query for each other and then they, we built the tunnel, and then they both responded. So we actually built the tunnel in both, initiated the tunnel in both directions almost simultaneously. That's really cool. And that's just timing, just because of the way the timing is working. Just the way the timings work. I left it. We also, we didn't work really hard to, we, we could actually get double tunnels at the IPsec layer, where we'd only be actually using one of them. And I left the code that way thinking that, well, you know what? Maybe I, for some reason, building the tunnel in direction A to B is blocked or just isn't going to work. But I can get the tunnel build initiated B to A. If I can get either one of them up, I have a fully functional bidirectional tunnel. So we never worked very hard to stop that put in any code to try to figure out, oh, I've already initiated, you know, I've already sent this, I don't need to initiate or something like this. So we left it wide open and, and let them build double tunnels. So it, it wasted some memory, but that was about it. Yeah. So it's, it's an optimization issue, right? Yeah. That's all it is. is. You're either optimizing the memory utilization on each box or you're optimizing the speed at which you bring things up. And if something happens or fails, then you have an alternate path. Right. So, so I yeah. have at least, I have two chances to get that tunnel up. Right. I figured that was better than one. If And there are cases where we, we did have one-way traffic problems sometimes. Well, well, and I can envision where solving that problem would have created others. Um, yeah. 
especially in the field where there's something weird in between and, and IPSEC is this way, right? Yeah. Like one side can bring up the tunnel, but the other can't because there's some kind of weird lifetime mismatch or something no strange picks. going on in the middle. <laughs> Stop. <Yeah>. Really? Like, <laughs> don't bring that up. <laughs> This is about the same time as the pigs came out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and that very, very true. Um, and stuff. And you're right. I mean, once you start playing and try to time that, then you, you, you've got all these timing issues of trying to figure out, you know, when did something happen? When does this other guy, what does the other guy know? But I don't know that he knows yet. Yeah. And it just, I mean, that was part of a, it was going to be a difficult problem to solve. So it was easier to punt and not try to solve it. And so I made up some nice uh, reasons why we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so when I think about the era in which DMVPN, you know, where, where you first conceptualized it, mm -hmm. I, if memory serves, broadband wasn't a big thing yet back then, right? And I mean, early 2000s, you're, you've not got a whole mm -hmm. lot of high-speed connectivity. No, yeah, that I'm remembering. Ones. Yeah, we're still I'm trying to think when that happened. Yeah, so we're still working T1s, frame relay stuff, frame relay T1s, X25 um, in Europe. Mm -hmm. There you go again. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, at some point, there, this broadband technology starts emerging, and all of a sudden, the use cases for DMVPN, I imagine, go through the roof, and and you right. see a huge increase in adoption. I would think. Yeah, I mean, as soon as DSL came in at the the spoke site, yeah, I mean, because then, because the interesting thing is, because I built DMVPN networks on top of like frame relay or point to point uh, WAN networks. I mean, logically, it looks like the packet's going from spoke A to spoke B, but if you actually physically follow the packet, it has to follow the physical network, and it's actually going into the hub site and going back out. Now it isn't it isn't really bugging the hub router because it's being, switch, it's being switched in hardware rather than being or even even IP switched, right? Right. It's being switched. It's being IP switched through very rapidly rather than having to pop up all the way and, and come up all the stacks and figure out what's inside the tunnel and then go, you know, repackage it and go mm -hmm. back out. So I mean there's definite cases where we've done that just for that purpose. Um, but, uh, so yeah, we go, go back to the email you sent now from there, how did DMVPN, I mean, so you were building, I guess, you know, from that initial point, how did it become more of a product? What was added to it after that? So I know there was a lot of work in the EGRP to change things and the way it worked on DMVPN. Um, right. I've, everything for the routing protocols was scaling. Right. Cause we suddenly presented scaling, huge scaling issues for the routing protocols. But if we talk a little bit more about how we brought it out as a product. So initially, Jan and I were working on it. You know, he would go code some stuff up. He would throw it to me. I would run some tests, play with it and say, no, I don't, you know, that's not working right. I don't like how that's working. We'd haggle back and forth how we thought it should work. He'd go back, code it, and we'd keep going back and forth until we had basically the stuff in place. Now, that was all the NHRP GRE layer and some of the IPsec layer. We had to, I mean, there's a number of other engineers, um, IPsec and crypto engineers that helped 
to tie in, to cleanly tie in IPsec into NHRP. So we had the point where NHRP was ready. Oh, I need this tunnel. It would directly signal to IPsec what we call the crypto socket. It would open up a crypto socket with IPsec, and, I, and that would tell IPsec, oh, I need this crypto from here to here. Here's, you know, here's the addresses. Here's what you need to encrypt. Go set it up and tell me when you're ready. Um, so, so we had this conceptual thing. It was pretty much a stealth project. Um, and we, you know, we let some people know and we're starting to try to get it out. And what I did starting in 2000, I started doing networkers. Before it was Cisco live. Before it was Cisco live. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I was doing security tunnels, I was talking about GRE tunnels and encryption, you know, IPsec encryption with GRE tunnels and how you lay out the networks and these issues that you have and these are solutions, stuff like that. At the end of my talks in 2001 and 2002, I did this little three or four slides on DMVPN idea. So I basically presented directly to the customers, this is an idea, what do you think? I don't think you could get away with that today, Mike. No. I was going to say, this is why they don't let engineers talk directly <laughs> to customers. <laughs> well, I mean, I was, we're, you know, as an engineer, an attack engineer, trying to push this new idea, we didn't have a whole lot of clout. And so I sort of twisted around. So I figured, well, if customers looked at it, they liked it, they'd ask their sales engineers, when can I have this? And then the sales engineers would come back to engineering saying, what is this? My customer wants it. (laughs) Yvonne, what do you think of that? (laughs) Oh, you know, it's, uh, (laughs) there was, there was, there was no prepackaged marketing pitch for that one. It doesn't sound like (laughs) the sales engineers weren't prepped with this DMVPN stuff. They're like, I don't know. I've never heard of that. So they're going to let me get back to you. They give the, you know, the good, mm-hmm. you know, sales engineer answer. Yep. And then they, you know, lose their minds on the phone with somebody. <laughs> well, we finally got marketing to take notice. <laughs> so they finally got said, this is a pretty good idea. Let's, let's work on it. Let's, you know, let's get it running and stuff. Now the interesting thing Originally, I wanted to call it, so DMVPN stands for Dynamic Multipoint Virtual Private Network. Originally, I wanted to call it Dynamic Mesh VPN. For some reason, marketing just said you cannot use mesh. I don't, I don't remember now what the reason was. Was that Pepe? Or was it before Pepe? I'm trying to remember that time frame. I think there was a big thing going on with mesh networks. There was a big, big thing going on with mesh networks around 2000, 2001. That could they be. May, they may have wanted to avoid that sinkhole. So that's why we have multipoint. <laughs> <laughs> the vagaries of history. Yeah. So, so eventually, eventually we got marketing. We got marketing behind us and we came out. Um, the initial product we pushed out, of course, had lots of bugs in it. And stuff. And so 
we went back and said, okay, what all, what all do we need to fix? And there were, there were just a ton of stuff we needed to fix. Um, so we split into two pieces. We wanted to fix all of the point to point network stuff first, hub and spoke portion of it first, and then fix the multi-point or the mesh stuff second. So that's where DMVPN phase one and phase two. And so phase one from. was fixing all the point to point stuff and phase two is f- fixing all the multi-point. Right. Et cetera stuff. And then, well, and yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, I, I worked on a DMVPN network that in the early days of working on it, it didn't work across NAT, for example, if, if you're, you know, if you had a, had a spoke out there that was on an internet connection that, that wasn't publicly IP'd, NHRP didn't deal with that well, right? Because it would return the private IP address of the router, not the public NATed IP address, and then it just could never get there. So there were issues like that too. I'm sure that came later. Yeah, that came slightly later. And that one we did, yeah, we added to, because we actually solved that one in that when the registration came in, we, so I have an NHRP registration packet that uses the internal address exactly as you talked about. And that popped up to the NHRP code. And the NHRP code snuck a peek back to the GRE header the source and the GRE header, if the two addresses didn't match, it assumed the source and the GRE header was the one we wanted. And so we plopped that one in instead. And that sort of allowed us to work on that. But you're exactly right. Initially, we didn't have that NAT code in place. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that it worked that way. So I tried to bring up a site that was doing that and it didn't work. I was like, yeah. what's going on? <laughs> Yeah, all the all these things you find out when you try to run code on real networks. Yeah. <laughs> if only we could just keep it all in the lab. Be great. Right. Be much better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, what was the scale you got to? Was it five hundred or a thousand? I seem to remember larger numbers than that with DMVPN. Um, so DMVPN phase two, we pretty much kept it to a single. 7,200 maxed out at about a thousand nodes. Okay. Um, we would go ahead and build three and 4,000 node networks by having multiple 7,200s. We're just running out of processing power because you're doing all this IPsec and you're doing everything else. You just run out of processing power. Right. Now, the other problem that we're, the other problem we had was building these larger networks. We were starting to overload the hub router, not in a configuration standpoint as we're doing before, but in a routing protocol standpoint. Because phase two demanded that the spokes have the full routing tables for all the, so they had a a route in the routing table for the tunnel IP with a destination for the tunnel IP address of every other spoke so that they could, they knew how to build, build the connection. So that would trigger them saying, oh, I need to know what this tunnel IP address, I would go down to NHRP, NHRP would then find the actual tunnel endpoint address to map the, you know, the inside address to the outside address effectively. Mm -hmm. So, so they had to have full routing tables. Well, we now have, so think about it, I've got a thousand nodes, they're advertising one route into the hub, so it gets a thousand routes. 
not big of a problem. Now he has to turn around and advertise a thousand routes out to a thousand nodes. And they're all point to point. Well, they're all, well, it's a multi, from his point of view, it's a multi-point interface. Right. There's still got to be, there's still got to be packet replication. Right. Onto every one of those guys. It's all got to be done at the hub. It's got to be done at NHRP or it's got to be done somewhere in the data plane in the data forwarding path. Right. And it's all got to be done on the processor, particularly on a 7200. There's no way mm-hmm. to do this in hardware. Um, you know. So he learned a thousand routes, but he had to advertise a million routes. Yeah. So that was killing him. So that's when we came up with the idea of phase three. So phase three was to try to solve this problem by letting NHRP pick up the routes dynamically as needed. So just in time routing. So when you saw the query, you would actually pull the route out of the routing table and advertise it, essentially. Uh, Essentially. So what the difference was is that I would, so spoke A would query for a single destination IP address as spoke B. When spoke B answered, he would answer with the full subnet, say not only just the slash 32, but this whole slash 24 I'm handling. And then NHRP normally would just stick that in the NHRP database. Well, with phase three, what we do is we push it then into the routing protocol, routing database. Okay. Cool. Um, now it was not routed. Um, it was pushed into the routing routing table as an NHRP route, so none of the other routing protocols would pick it up. Which at the time was our sort of our intent, because the idea I always had was that NHRP was allowed to modify the forwarding over the DMVPN network but he wasn't supposed to modify what happens outside of the DMVPN network. That was the routing protocol's job. Right. Um, later on, we actually got to the point where we wanted to actually push the routes, NHRP routes into the routing protocol so they could advertise them further into the network. But initially we tried to keep it as very much centralized. You know, NHRP could only affect what happens within the DMVPN network. And you assume you haven't nailed up static or something at the hub router that's advertising that entire set of subnets as some sort of an aggregate out to the rest of the network. Exactly. Our hub and spoke becomes reachable that way, sure. Yeah, so, right. So, and it simplified things. I mean, he gets a thousand, he gets a thousand subnets advertised to him. He, you know, at best, he could advertise one aggregate to everybody. Right. So we pretty much reduced the issue. Now, one of the issues you brought up with EIGRP, for example, was scaling issue, was that from EIGRP standpoint, the GRE tunnel was a multi-point tunnel, was like a single ethernet. Right. And EIGRP at the time wasn't built to handle a thousand neighbors on a single interface. And the way EGRP works for multicasts, reliable multicasts would be a real mess in that situation. Right, right. I mean, it would, it would sort of work, but it put a whole lot of load on the EGRP. So that's when you, put, you went in and worked to rework that code. In fact, we did that a couple times, yeah. a number of 
because the thing with DMVPN, it was suddenly exceptionally easy to almost by accident build out a, I mean, I could build out a 10,000 10, node network. So 10,000 neighbors coming into a single interface as far as the IGRP is concerned without really trying that hard. Yeah, right. Because everything underneath, everything else was totally dynamic. Yeah. Interesting. So that's how it became a product. Any more recent changes? I mean, I, you know, I kid about it being SD-WAN before SD-WAN was cool, but it is kind of really that way. It, it mean, really was a precursor. Really I mean, because yeah. your, your spoke is your, um, not your spoke, your hub is your, is almost, operates almost like a controller. Yeah. And, yeah. and holds really all the policy and all of the spokes connect in and it tells them what to do. Um, yeah. The one piece that we didn't, have in the policy was the IPsec piece. Right. So you had to pre-configure the IPsec policy across the whole network. And the other thing was um, we had to use a wildcard pre-shared key. <laughs> not the cleanest. I not agree. the best option. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Not the best option, but we had little choice because the, you know, the other option to do, you know, pairwise keys between a thousand nodes is, a nightmare yeah. and key, key distribution right. in that environment would be horrible if you tried to do a thousand key, pairwise keys right right and it wasn't until we got uh, the later ipsec code that could use uh, certificates right so that's when we you know as soon as certificates came along then we started pushing customers to certificates and that solved right. that problem and, and now you could even use something like dane like dns type solutions to carry your public key or something like that there's other ideas out there now yeah but. Back now the one, those those ideas didn't exist. Yeah. The one thing was is that we always kept on was that every single tunnel was a separate pairwise encrypted tunnel. So if you happen to break into one of the spokes, you could read any traffic between him and the hub and between him and any other spoke, but you couldn't read traffic anywhere outside that group between other two spokes or another spoke between the hub. It was so the origins of microsegmentation. You heard it here first. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, there were some more. There were some other more modern versions of IPsec that don't have quite have that property. Yeah, interesting. Um, but that was so. Phase one, phase two came out in two thousand four, two thousand five. Um, I think in two thousand four we got the Cisco uh, Pioneer Award for DMVPN. Um, 2006 is when we came out with DMVPN phase three. And that also brought the NAT support, the NAT support and phase three support. Um, so then we, we went that way for a while, uh, for a long time and you know fixing little things there, here and there. Um, some of the latest stuff that we did with it before it got eclipsed by uh, the new cool technology. The new cool technologies, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was we were setting it up so that we could actually do more of the policy from the hub. And we also had a mechanism that we built that I could separate the policy hub from the data hub. That's really cool. So that was, that was the cool piece that I think that could have taken DMVPN a lot farther because everybody would join the policy hub and keep a tunnel up with him, including the data hub. 
And then the policy hub would tell the spokes, oh, you're a spoke and here's your data hubs. And they tell the data hub, oh, you're a data hub. And, yeah. and your, your spokes will register you when they come online. Yeah. That would have made it scale a lot better. Mm-hmm. And then we used BGP in that case because we could manipulate BGP on the policy hub because BGP on the policy hub would be like the central main node for BGP. Yeah. To redistribute in all the routes um, as they were learned across the network. Yeah. So that was one of the newer things, one of the new cool things we did, but never really got sent, you know, got out, got into the main code. So as you uh, think back, you know, to the early days, um, is there anything you would do differently? Oh, that one's hard. (laughs) That's Donald Sharp's question. He couldn't be here tonight, but I'm proxying. (laughs) Yvonne's the Donald proxy today. I'm the Sharp proxy. (laughs) Proxy by a last name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only thing I think of is I probably would have tried to push harder to get it into production and maybe push harder to get new features in faster. Maybe SD WAN never would have happened if you would have done that, Mike. I don't know. I, I think we could have. <laughs> well, I was told I could have usurped Lisp, but. Uh, <laughs> Lisp never seems to have eclipsed it, did it? It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, in the now, um, I forgot, what's the new um, tunneling protocol that Lisp uses? Well, there's Lisp and there's um, VXLAN. No, VXLAN. Yeah. So we actually, that was one other change we did recently. We made DMVPN run over VXLAN tunnels. So we could run oh, over tunnels or we could run over VXLAN tunnels. So you could actually run DMVPN in your data centers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, D- DMVPN was a very widely deployed technology really and really solved a lot of, of urgent problems around low speed or, or low cost connectivity and, yeah. and trying to get connectivity in places or, or backup connectivity, you know, you've got your high yeah. speed, but then you want to use a broadband. I mean, it 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 really filled a very important role in networking. Um, it, it did, it did. I mean, at the time, it, it very much so. I mean, we had oh, tens of thousands of customers using DMVPN. I've been told at some point that the um, oh, which line of routers was one of the small lines of routers. Um, that DMVPN was 50% of the deployment. Wow. Probably like and a 2911 or, or something you know, like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. On those, and, you know, on that whole class of routers, um, DMVPN was, you know, 50 to 60% of the deployments were because of DMVPN. Wow. That's really cool. It is cool. Well, all right. So we are at 55 minutes, so I guess we should wrap up. Thanks, Mike, for coming on. So, Mike, do you blog anyplace? I ask everybody this, and everybody says no, so it's okay. If you <laughs> That's good, because no, I don't. <laughs> can people find you on LinkedIn, Twitter, anyplace else? They can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Facebook, okay. I don't but I'm definitely on LinkedIn, too. Yeah, okay, cool. Good. And Yvonne, where can people find you? 
You can find me on the blog at esharp.net. I promise I've got something coming soon. Um, or you can find me on Twitter at Sharp Network. I, I blog at about one one thousandth of the pace of Russ. So, <laughs> And of course, you can always find me at rule11.tech and the Network Collective. Thanks for hanging out with us for this history of networking. And we'll see you next time on the Network Collective.